my friend Yaniv is bringing me some neon yellow Crocs that he got at the airport in Mexico City. Stoked. Chris, you, stoked. You, you, you never responded to the uh, the goth Crocs that I posted in the Slack that I tagged you in. I know. Those are those I think are because great. Chris got it from all yeah. angles. Like he had multiple people texting him about it. Yeah. It was on it, multiple Literally Facebook on posts. The day it dropped, I got yeah, I got that content from like eight people. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> I mean, that is that is the most you. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. just the most you. It's <laughs> yeah. So what are you gonna go to Hot Topic and trick out these neon yellow Crocs? Well, so they have like a blue part on the midsole that I'm gonna paint black, so they so it looks I mean, sick. Just using the oh. word midsole to talk about Crocs. There's something <laughs> <laughs> amazing. <clears throat> Uh, and I have a neon yellow Stone Island jacket and a neon yellow Supreme hat that I think I'm going to wear. I'm gonna, oh, man. I'm going to do it. I'm just, you know, I just have to do it. That's that's your outfit for the first uh, video podcast we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, the first yeah. Twitch stream is going to be you. I mean, yeah, we'll get a lot of we'll get a lot of new fans, certainly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Flash those Crocs I'm, on screen. Phew, game over. I'm telling you guys. Rocks are really comfortable. <laughs> this is episode, uh, yeah, one or one and a half or two. One point five. Let's call it one. Okay, 5. this is episode one point five of Basecamp Beta. I'm Chris. This is Sean. And this is the other Chris, CZ. And what are we talking about today? Sean, you should lead this off. Well, so we were, we, we were musing earlier briefly over what to, uh, what to talk about uh, as far as kind of old, old music. And uh, I think in keeping with the show's general focus on, on sort of personal canons, anti-canons, uh, and kind of heterodox histories, I, one, of my, one of my all-time favorite tracks is Kikroko's Life is a Jungle. And there's a Ron Hardy edit of it. The track is just a uh, very, very solid kind of spacey disco track. A lot of synthesizers. It's, it's, it's a big track. But then right in the middle of it is this breakdown that comes out of nowhere. And the breakdown is, is just, a, it's a psychedelic meltdown embedded in the middle of a, a, a beautiful disco track. And Ron Hardy, in all his genius decided the thing to do was just loop that breakdown. Ron Hardy edit takes the, takes just this 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 totally bizarre uh, breakdown and loops it endlessly. And I, I really think like this kind of low key is is one of the kind of uh, hidden keystones of of making sense of of Chicago House because I think like the the kind of the simple explanations of Chicago House are that you know these were young kids going to Music Box and Warehouse trying to emulate like 
you know, Klein and MBO or uh, Sharivari, you know, they, they were they were just young kids trying to rip off disco songs with um, with like really cheap, crappy gear. Uh, and that's definitely that's definitely like kind of the bulk of it. But um, there is, you know, Chicago House at its best has this totally demented psychedelic <coughs> element that uh, that I think is, is is missing. And for me, this this track goes a long way towards piecing all that together. Um, it has this this kind of weird off kilter lumbering bass line that I think you can hear echoes of in in like No Way Back or uh, Farley uh, Farley's uh, Acid Life. It's it's for, for me it's just kind of it, it's pure Chicago. Um, so yeah, I mean, what, what 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 do you guys think? What do you got to say? Well, well, I think for me, not really. I just listened to the edit and not really knowing the history of it. Uh, or having the familiarity with it that you do, what really struck me is how much it sounds to me kind of like old school EBM. Like for sure, yeah, yeah, and um, that kind of reminds me of the conversations I've had with Jeff Mills about about what dance music was like in the late '80s and the early '90s, where he was like, "Yeah, you know, back in the day." DJs would play everything. They would they would just pick. Yeah. They would you know they'd mix in front two four two next to Carl Craig or whatever. And, yeah, uh, or next to Klein and MBO. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, yeah, it's just a really interesting sort of portrait. And uh, I'm guessing that that this edit is what probably origi- was originally from like the early '80s. I would guess a two three four. So I listened. I mean, I listened to a Ron Hardy mix earlier today uh, from '84, and this edit is is in that mix. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's a recording from. I guess it would have been the Music Box in '84. Yeah. Um, I, he was definitely playing it in yeah, like '84, '85. Um, it definitely could have pre, you know, uh, existed before that. Um, Another. The thing record that is I... from '79 or '80, '81. I should, I should, I should have the original track is from 78. Yeah. 78. Okay. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's super interesting is I just looked up the edit on discogs and it was pressed on vinyl in 2005 or so, but, uh, there's the bootleg series of, of Ron Hardy edits. Right, right, right. So Mm. it's a recreation of Ron Hardy's edit, which is kind of surreal. I have a, I have a bootleg from the eighties that, um, has a, a version of it that I, I'm not sure if it was actually Ron Hardy's um, edit himself. Wow! But uh, yeah, that's kind of crazy, you know. Edits of edits of edits. It's <laughs> right. Shadows on the dance floor. The thing I find <laughs> interesting about this track is that um, so you have Ron Hardy, and he, to most people, is sort of the inventor of house music. And house music is seen as, you know, that the word house comes from, you know, oh, the music that was played at the warehouse. So um, this whole huge genre have, has spawned from places like the warehouse and the music box. Um, and this track, I think, really, it really puts into perspective the fact that I, I, I think it's still kind of crazy that a DJ basically invented a genre of music. Um, but it wasn't the first time that that, that that it happened either, so. No, but I mean, can you really imagine that today? I mean, at the time, like, 
you know, uh, there's a confluence of all sorts of things of of clubs that are very open and open minded, playing all sorts of music. There's like a hungry crowd, and there's like a proliferation of cheap electronics, and so all those things kind of come together. Um, to the those kids who went to the music box and heard this, they would come home like super inspired by this like crazy edit Ron Hardy would make that sounded completely alien. I mean, it was just like the breakdown of this, you know, of this ornate disco track. But at the time, like, I mean, listening to this track now, it it sounds, I mean, yeah, if it was made in 82 or 83 or 84, that's insane because it sounds completely, I mean, it's just, it's totally, it's house music. I mean, as we all understand it. Yeah. Um, I mean, like it, 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 it sounds not that far off from something that Theo Parrish might have made in 2001 or something. Like. Yeah. And just like the fact that a DJ basically invented a genre. And I, I, I can't imagine DJs inventing genres of music now. I mean, I, I think that happens all the time. I think that, that, that so look at, um, think about um, instrumental D Bridge and Botica, they, you know, in 2008 or so, their label, Autonomic, basically changed the course of for sure, yeah, drum and bass. Like they, they stripped out the breakbeats, they reduced drum and bass to its most minimal constituents, and they've created this whole blueprint that is still thriving today, and that there's like a whole scene. That I don't know. Sure. I don't know if that that the music exists in any real clubs anywhere, but it is incredible music. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not as obviously it's not as influential as house music, but but I think that's kind of how electronic music works a, a lot of times. Is I, well, somebody my, will. What are you gonna say, Chris? No, no, go on. Well, I, I yeah, I just think you know it's like it's it's a uh, somebody takes a step, tries something new, and it happens to work really well, and it inspires a whole legion of copycats, and sometimes that becomes an entire genre and an and, and entire sound unto itself. I think that's just kind of how the whole style of music operates. I mean, and, 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 and then it hits the Beatport Top 10. Yeah. I mean... And you create... What was that uh, Beatport genre that got created? The other day it was like experiment... Complexo? <laughs> excuse me what complexro that's that's oh complexro yeah 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 complexo, that's good stuff wow beatport <laughs> there was something to basically like throw complexro revival 2019 man it's gonna be big <laughs> wow <laughs> but i guess i mean the thing is that um instrumental like they're producers um yeah okay the the sort yeah. of thing i'm trying to suss out is the fact I that see, like okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, like house music was invented. Like, not only does the name reference like a club, but right, the right, name right. also. But like the whole like sonic language came from Ron Hardy, who I right. mean, he was a DJ. He was not a producer. I mean, you know, right. he he has right. some tracks, but I mean, no one knows of Ron Hardy for him being a producer. I mean, right. we know of him for being a DJ, and like the thing yeah. that he did to sort of light the fire under house music was through his DJing, right. through what people heard at specific 
locations through, on certain through, nights through, through re-editing tracks and recontextualizing and combining different styles of music um i see what you're saying yeah, yeah. You're right. that is that, I think that I, is really kind of of a of a moment and of a kind you know yeah absolutely i think there's yeah there, i mean there's two things two things to consider here one is that i think we are we have pushed very far up against the absolute formal limits of dance music um, what do you mean? What, 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 what do you mean by the, by the is, formal limit? That is, you know, I mean, dance music is highly formalist. You can only push a certain genre of dance music so far mm. before it ceases to be that style of dance mm. music or before it ceases to be dance music, period. Sure. Um, and I, I, I think we've, I think the prolifer, pr- proliferation of forms that we've seen over the last, uh, you know, 30, 40 years, uh, especially, you know, from... You know, let's say basically uh, eighty three until two thousand five, give or take. That that was a and especially you know from like ninety to ninety seven or something. That was a once in a that, that was a once in a lifetime thing. We will never see forms proliferated at that rate again. I don't think it's possible. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But I think a really interesting kind of counterpoint to what you're talking about, Sean, is basically. UK grime and dubstep, like well, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think those those are the developments that came specifically out of laptop. Uh, the, the, those those came directly from the laptop, right? Um, yeah, they would not have existed yeah. otherwise. Um, but that is that's about it, honestly. Like, how much how much else have we seen come from the laptop in that way outside of a uh, SoundCloud you know, rap, Max MSP? <laughs> Shit! Yeah, damn. I mean, Will's damn. Damn. My, my theory's out the window. <laughs> Come on, man. It all it, it just it just all comes down to SoundCloud, right? Always. <laughs> you you want to end any argument? I got two words for you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is the perfect music for like our current moment. You know, politically, emotionally. Um, you know, the sort of stunted. Uh, Benzo, you know, benzo core benzoed man. nothing you know it's it's pretty perfect music for that to explain you know i don't know the 2000 the 2010s you know i i, I remember once i when i first heard grimes not grime obviously but grimes the uh ah. the 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 musk addled uh you know uh <laughs> pop chanteuse uh <laughs> when, I, when I first heard Grimes, it, it, like the, the music just screamed benzos to me. It's just like this is this is this is Xanax music. It's it's sort of pleasant and uh, uh, unobtrusive and doesn't really have any kind of uh, peaks or valleys or kind of a uh, you know intense kind of emotions any which way. And uh, the songs kind of meander and then they end. The first and only time I've ever heard Grimes was when I saw her play at Berghain, of all places. <laughs> and it was one of the, like, weirdest things. what? Yeah, it was one of the weirdest things. I'm pretty sure it was Grimes. Maybe it was someone else. <laughs> no? <laughs> Producer Rochelle is saying no. Maybe it was Kylie Minogue. I, well, I was just going to say, I like that one Grimes song. I, 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 I cannot deny it. It's not very good. I don't know what one you're talking about, but I, I, I know it's not very good, Chris. No, it's not good, but it's effective. Like like Xanax. <laughs> the, the the ultimate drug of the 2010s is not one that gives you euphoria, but the one that just takes the terror away. Exactly, just pure numbness, absence of feeling. Yeah, Grimes yeah. definitely played Berghain. 
and, and you were there for it. I think I was. That's that's uh, that's just like being at the music box, man. You you witnessed history. So we went from uh, Ron Hardy to Grimes at Berghain in uh, about ten minutes. So <laughs> small round of applause for us. I mean, I'm still fascinated by the by the meta nature of the edit that's available on vinyl. Like that's just some weird shit, man. That's some weird shit. But in, in, I mean, you know, vinyl, like like reits pressed to vinyl was such a big thing in the mid two thousands. Like, yeah, yeah, that was that was. Yeah, I mean, it was a whole scene. Yeah, that was much of those years for me. Um, it's just you know, and, 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 like, so- amusingly, that was like also like the way because like at that point, like no one was really making new music, so the way that a uh, <clears throat> the way that a DJ got known in those years was often because they put out a hot re-edit record. I mean, I have many friends right. who established, you know, uh, viable careers based on re-edit records. Um, I think there's a lot to say about that, I guess, but I don't know if we really want to go there. Yeah, I think we can keep moving. <laughs> so, yeah, breaking news, uh, Red Bull's dead. Um, yeah, what do we have to say about this? I mean, it's... You know, to summarize, well, we um, specify that it's Red Bull Music Academy. Yes, sorry, <clears throat> yeah. specifically. So to specify, it's Yada Star is the company that basically ran RBMA. It ran Red Bull Radio. It ran Red Bull's sort of cultural and music-based um, wing, and in the typical sort of bizarre neoliberal labyrinth of you know corporations this wasn't like a part of red bull it was a uh independent company who had a client subcontracted yeah and and red bull was basically their only client and uh so now that client relationship has been terminated um which effectively means that rbma is dead um yeah. At, the, at the end of the month, I think is is that is that or the next? Oh, like I think the, they maybe said two months or something. Yeah, I can't remember well, what the it, what the frame is. They, I think they're going to run till October, so there's some, okay, okay, some okay, there's some time. Okay, but <clears throat> I mean, I think what I've always what has always fascinated me about RBMA is like what an oblique marketing strategy this this whole project is. Well, my joke has always been that I mean. Techno people have their own drugs. Right? <laughs> right. Right. Who's and they work right. better? Yeah, they work better than Red Bull. Who's? I mean, I you know I don't know any techno people, any friends really who drink I, Red Bull. So you know, honestly, very I, bizarre. I I well, you know, I my my drug years are young, young, long past me. Um, and Red Bull has literally saved my life on half a dozen occasions. Yeah, but only because it was the only thing that was available. Uh, well, it's. I think it's a pretty pretty effective product. This is, this is me going on on the record, looking for that sponsorship. <laughs> bring 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 me the money. Um, no, uh, I, I, I <laughs> Red Bull has many wings. Sean. It has. It has. It has lifted me from graves. It has given me the, the 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 bovine courage to step onto stage on an hour and a half of sleep. <clears throat> but still, I mean, just think of, like. Red Bull Music Academy existed for 20 years. It's, it's 20 crazy. I mean, that's <laughs> bizarre. Crazy. When you think about the fact that it goes back, what, so that it's 1998 is when it starts? Yeah. 
I mean, I didn't. I, I don't think it, it existed longer long. than like the history of techno. <laughs> <laughs> Up to that, you know, like it existed longer it, than techno had existed until it came into being. It's right, which is bizarre. It's it, it's existed longer than most careers in techno for sure. So <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's so fascinating to me as a yeah as a as a marketing strategy like. I suppose the goal all along was to was to make Red Bull an indelible part or name or brand or whatever in underground electronic music. I, mean, I, I think I think I think it I think to some degree it worked. Um, yeah, everyone oh, everyone yeah, oh. no one drinks mate, everyone drinks Red Bull. Well, I mean well, mate's mate's kind of uh, on the up and up for sure and I mean, honestly, maybe, like maybe that does have maybe that does figure in there somewhere, not inconsequentially. But um, uh, yeah, it, it, it was an impressive marketing strategy. I think it was very um, not to I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm championing this this you know nightmarish corporation, but it was a very forward th- forward thinking strategy. It you know in the, in it the late was. 90s. I mean, that, yeah, that was some really ahead of its time marketing technique. Um, and it, obviously, it paid off well for them, but uh. I think, you know, more pressing to us is the fact that, um, in, in, you know, in an immediate sense is the fact that, you know, corporate subsidies of dance music have been one of the main things keeping, keeping dance music afloat for the last, <laughs> the last 10 years. Um, yeah. and, and increasingly so, um, and, you know, Red Bull being, you know, the first adopter and the first, uh, exeter, um, I don't think it's, uh, it's ominous. To say the least. Yeah, um, it's a, I mean, it, you know, newsflash, it's a terrible fucking strategy to base your culture's existence uh, increasingly around corporate subsidies. But it's, you know, it's not like people have had but a what choice. Other, what, what other choice do we have, Chris? I mean, I don't know. It, I don't know what have the Have you other- heard of Patreon? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the have other- Have you heard of a trust fund? That's more getting to it. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the other choice is, but yeah, I yeah. think one of the other choices is integrity. They, I mean, there's something, I'm sorry, but there's something about this idea of selling out that people are yeah. all of a sudden kind of like, well, it's actually fine. Um, and I mean, I, I get the impulse to feel that way. I mean, I, I get the impulse to to, you know, for artists to take a check, like, I, I'm not criticizing the artists particularly for taking that check. I think that's totally, I, I think in, in most respects, that's totally fine. But I think the moment we start to glorify this thing or, or sort of pretend that it's totally fine and basically, I think sometimes just return to the way in which you thought when you were, you know, 15 and being like, ah, that, you know, that's a sellout. Like, sellout poser. I think um, that's fine sometimes, and I think that's instructive. I mean, I you know I agree with you, but I think the fact I mean, I, you know, I have never historically been a huge fan of Red Bull's uh, Red Bull's presence in our scene, but at the same time, I know the alternatives are so few and far between. I like yeah, the, the, the alternative know, is nothing. Buys- so you know, right. Nobody um, buys records anymore. Nobody buys anything anymore. Back, back, back to what Chris was uh, saying, though. I think um, I think the, the real shift for me is uh, is you know because like corporations have been 
long involved with underground music. Um, you know, kind of uh, uh, artists have often banked on getting songs in car commercials or, you know, weird corporate sponsorships in various ways. Yeah, for a long time. And I think we and all accurately shit on Moby for being a sellout. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's fine. That's pretty fair. Um, but no, like, I, I, think, I think the real shift which has occurred in the last just couple of years where that has gone from like a sort of embarrassing thing that an artist does out of necessity or, you know, just something you, you kind of don't want to talk about as an artist. Like, yeah, right. I, I took a paycheck for Volvo or whatever. Right. Um, it's become to, an to, actual to, aspiration now. Oh yeah, no, exa exactly, exactly. This is, this is a career yeah. goal. Like, well, my plan yeah. is to, 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 you know, court, you know, corporate sponsorship X, Y, Z. Um, and you know, this, this is all, it's all part of a kind of a, you know, um, trajectory to, uh, you know, the Beatport top 10. And I mean, if you don't care about the music or the culture or, you know, whatever, then it's fine because when the corporate sponsor inevitably just kind of backs out yeah. and pulls out all the money, um, it's fine. You didn't have that much invest. I mean, you had some sort of career vested into it, but you know, hopefully you got paid or, but you can just move on to the next thing. It's fine. You, you go back to coding or banking or something. It's cool. Yeah. But like, if this is your thing, if music to you means quite a bit more than that, um, then, you know, you're kind of fucked. Um, and this is why I, I, I think, you know, I mean, we, our, our show is named after a UR track. And I think, I mean, there's that UR record that, it's what called message to the majors or it is, something. It is called message to the majors. Yeah, and I I think this is instructive. I mean, U R is you know in the early '90s were vehemently anti corporate, um, and you know would basically be screaming about that kind of thing all the time. Well, you know, to be fair, this was an era when you could reliably sell ten to twenty thousand copies of a record. Sure. Um, you know, we don't exist in those times anymore. Um, you know, if a record right. sells, well, if, if mean, sells a thousand copies now, two thousand. I mean, two thousand copies is psycho. You sell two thousand copies, you nobody's are nobody's selling that. Yeah. yeah, you know, the goal now is like you press, you press three hundred, you sell two fifty. That's that's exactly. like that, that's hitting the, that's exactly. hitting the jackpot. That's like a job well done. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's that's like that's that's you're taking yourself out to, to to sushi. You know, it's great. So. I mean, I agree with everything you guys are saying, but I also, I think the real sort of, uh, the culprit here is not the artists or the labels or the DJs or whomever. It's the everyday music listeners who have basically abdicated their responsibility. Oh, no, no, no. I couldn't, dis no, no, you can't, like, you can't, no, you can't blame the consumer. Yes. Like, like, like. Of course you can. Why can't you? Look, if, if music fans... If everyone just bought one record on Bandcamp a month, then no one would still make any fucking money, dude. Well, it's, uh, well I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not wrong. There's, I mean, yes. There's, I mean, there's, yes. there's no saving the, there's no saving this industry through, through like, like you know, kind of a, through, through, through badgering consumers for, uh, for downloading stuff or streaming stuff. Uh, but then, but then, but then what, but then what, what's the, like, like what alternative is there if, if, if there is no foundational ground support from fans, from listeners, from consumers, total extermination, that's, huh? <laughs> I said to, total extermination. 
we're well, looking yeah, we're I looking mean, at the end of music. I I, I I I I say that barely facetiously. Well, I mean the the reason we're looking at that is because of neoliberalism. I mean, basically, the artist has no support. Um, you know, so any sort of you know housing is more expensive, healthcare is yeah. non-existent, wages are down. So already, the cards are stacked against you if you don't have a tech job. Things are harder and harder and harder every day because things are harder and harder for just people every day. Right. And I think this, I mean, you know, what's the next thing? You know, Amazon fucking comes in and, and, and starts, you know, some sort of, you know, weird, uh, you know, no, it's, subsidy. It's, it's, it's full, full communism or eco-apocalypse. I mean, let's be real. That's Yeah, exactly. At. I mean, you know, our political viewpoint on the on the show is clear is that, you know, Eco-communism is the only path forward, and you know, anything else. I mean, it. You know, it's Any, un- anything else is a straight-up death cult, and that's that's. Let's be real. That's well, but it it's completely <laughs> true. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, you know, it, and I, I. It just this whole like corporate sponsorship thing is just letting the market come in and further decimate um, what should be a culture. I mean, culture ostensibly should exist outside of all of these things, but. By letting it in, by accepting corporate sponsorships, and by by sort of inviting this dynamic in, we, in my opinion, invite all of these forces in to culture, um, into a culture that we, at least, I think that we kind of care about. Um, we invite all these forces in that maybe you know I you know can we make any money from making weird. Techno, I mean, no. I mean, that's kind of a pipe dream. But can we, I don't know, have it not be fucked up by markets and corporations? Hopefully. I, you know, I, I know I'm the utopian sort of idealist of the show, but I, I... Well, I agree with you, Chris. But I think what's interesting is that when I think about the mid to late 90s, even the early 2000s, when I was coming up, when I was discovering subculture and the underground and music scenes in general, there still was this, like, yes, it's true that culture exists outside of commerce, essentially, at its most essential function. But when I think about subcultures of yore or this subcultures that I, that I grew up in, there, you know, the people who dedicated themselves to these subcultures and this, or these sounds, or these way of, or these ways of being, or these art forms, they made it a real point to support each other uh, financially, you know, artistically, and it's just like I don't know. I, I, what I other- yeah, I, I, I do agree that um, you know I think <clears throat> um, increasingly we are forced to operate as like you know kind of. Um, like atomized brands vying for feed spaces is, is yeah. really is really the kind of <clears throat> the catchphrase that I I I I draw upon often and um, yeah I like I I think that has ultimately undermined any kind of real sense of community. Um, yeah, I mean the way the word community is thrown around these days is insane to me because people will talk about community as this sort of thing, but look, I mean we we. This isn't a community. Right. Resident Advisor is not a community. This is a collection <laughs> right. of individuals who are on a market. Yeah. Um, well, so a community, community actually, like, sorry? 
what is a community for you in your in your view? I mean, a community is, you know, I mean, in in sort of clear and practical purposes is, you know, like your neighbors that you all, everyone looks out for each other and, you know, uh, you know, supports each other, uh, you know, when I think, I think someone's it, sick or, you know, I mean, it, it's a very basic sort of, it's, it's the way humans have sort of oriented themselves. Uh, I think in forever. terms of, in terms of, you know, musical, uh, musical, uh, cultures, I, I think, you know, community is, um, is, is, is a shared, a shared aesthetic kind of trajectory, a shared political uh, kind of mind frame, and uh, and 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 shared shared goals in general, um, and yeah, I, I think that's very hard to to maintain or establish uh, in a musical environment that is is dictated by by the fee by the algorithm. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it's very depressing to think about. That's, I mean, that's what we're here for. That's we're here what we're to here bum for. people out. <laughs> True. <laughs> we get depressed about it, so you don't have to. <laughs> we get depressed about it, so you can too. <laughs> I mean, the way Red Bull figures into this, I, you know, I mean, I, I just think it's an invitation of, you know, the, the things that Red Bull did were, I think, great. The things that RBMA did were great. They had these lectures. They were really, really nice. I've watched. I think it's. I think it's really hard to argue many of that, them that that Red Bull has not been the the music journalistic outlet with the most integrity for the last uh, ten years, give or take. Yeah, I would they, agree. They've yeah, consistently produced high quality, um, you know, uh, high quality uh, material that is focused on interesting, like artists with real vision and and you know, kind of a. Yeah, it, 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 Red Bull has done a great job. It's it's really yeah, and I and I, 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 I they have done that because they hired all the best people. Yes, exactly. All the best people could not get work anywhere else because there was nobody <laughs> yes, there was yes. nobody else to pay them. Yes, and that gets back to my point. Like, you know what? If you want, if we as consumers and listeners and fans of music want a community to exist, we need to support it, and that means putting your money where your fucking mouth is. I, I, I am so against consumption-based solutions to anything. But what is... We what can't, is, we can't, we can't buy the, enough electric cars to save the biosphere. We can't, we can't sell enough MP3s to save the music industry. I mean, Jesus, I had to buy a fucking <laughs> headphone amp for the, for the podcast today, and I was wrestling with myself, oh, should I go to B&H? Their labor practices aren't very good. You know, maybe I shouldn't go to B&H to buy a headphone amp so we can... Amazon's re- much better. ...record yeah. this. But yeah, then, okay, Amazon. What are, you know, that's no better, so... You know, um, no, we I, I, always come up against this wall of, well, there's no ethical way to do this in the current system. There's blood on every dollar. Every cent is stained with misery. Um, no, uh, yeah, I mean, like, everything you buy is, 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 is you know, traceable to, 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 to human immiseration. Um, I know many people who like to complain about the lack of viable music journalism in the underground music world. But when it comes down to it, would they be willing to, you know, spend however much money to support the work that needs to be done to make that happen? But there's, there's, there's no infrastructure for it to happen anymore. That's, 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 you know, that's the other part of the problem is that, you know, we've, these, these, these outlets have been, have been, you know, kind of barely keeping themselves afloat through the clickocracy of uh, of you know of of modern web land and uh, 
yeah, uh, it, it's not going to get better. Um, but the alternative is what you, you like, um, it's, it's, it's patronage models. It's, it's, you know, Kickstarter and Patreon. And, uh, that's not a real long-term solution. Um, I mean, I think that on the one hand, but on the other hand, I see how incredibly successful it has been for many people. Yeah. I mean, well, Hey, we're, 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 that's why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> it's true. I mean, we're 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 aiming big. We're, we we know where the money is. I think it makes sense that in the current model, in the current world we all live in, of course, something like Patreon and Kickstarter is the only feasible yeah, model. Yeah. Or corporate patronage, of course, that's the only feasible model. But the reason why I think you can't, and the, the reason why I you know, always bring things to politics and why I think politics is a very clear um, and present part of the show is because, well, if we were to establish a model completely outside of the one that we currently exist in as a society, as a whole, um, maybe we could. But, you know, in the current neoliberal environment where Everything is delegated to markets. Everything is sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, meritocracy we, reigns supreme. Um, we, we, what we need is, is, is decommodification of certain spheres of life, period. So, right. You know, yeah. Um, but I think, so what's interesting to me is that not only do we all exist under a neoliberal regime, we are experiencing in, you know, th- that regime in which markets are the only logic that we understand. We are simultaneously experiencing a death of the market in that, you know, think about how the music industry used to work. You used to, there used to be a record label that pressed records and people used to buy those records. That shit doesn't fuck. I mean, you know, there's hangers on myself included, but that shit really doesn't happen anymore. It's like, that, that 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 whole market that whole market process is dying a death unto itself. Absolutely. I mean, well, well, one one point I make often is that, um, you know, music I think is is a is the medium without commodity. It's it's a medium that no longer has a commodity form. So there is there, yeah. music does you don't no one buys music. Music right. is music is 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 a medium. It's experienced. Yeah, it, it only has value in as much as it can be attached to a commodity that already has value, and then it can add value to that. Certainly, like an advertisement or a night at a club or uh, you know a, a movie or something. Um, but music itself, no one consumes music itself uh, in the way that all of us did growing up. Have, have either of you ever been to Discogs.com? I mean, when I think about the last pure music scene, I think about uh, mail, uh, tape mail trading, you know, there's, there's like a name for this scene. We're like obscure. Cassette, like, 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 like eighties cassette culture. Eighties. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Cassette right, trading right. culture. I mean that, well, that, but that's so long ago. I mean, I think like, you know, the way, the way that techno, uh, and even techno like mixed, like mixtape culture in the nineties. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Was totally vibrant. And you know, like if you were a, popular DJ locally who hustled and DJed a lot and recorded a lot of mixtapes, you could actually make a living just selling your mixtapes. Like people did that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have some DJ Tron mixtapes. I have some Delta 9. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's the good stuff. 
<laughs> Tron R.I.P. If you go away on this summer day, then you might as well take the sun away. All the birds that flew in the summer sky when our love was new and our hearts were high. And the day was young and the night was long and the moon stood still for the night bird's song if you go away if you go away if you go away Scott Walker died um, I don't know a couple days ago about a week ago it's a very bizarre um, it's a very bizarre death to me because Scott Walker, he was still making incredibly interesting music. I mean, he was still a very active artist. I mean, he did a record with Sun, what, like four years ago? I mean, this is someone who... Um, I never listened to that record. It was weird. <laughs> that sounds of about Of course right. it was weird. Um, but this is someone who was really like... Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is someone who was working on incredible and interesting music and and very bizarre music, um, and still was. This is someone who had a very long career in music, even though it was really fractured, but kept this integrity from his early uh, start in the '60s all the way up until the present day. He he kept his vitality as an artist. He he was important. He was someone who was current. You weren't talking about him because you were talking about the past. You were talking about him because he was back again and it was weird. Yeah, exactly. And um so on on one hand, the fact that he's dead feels really tough. But on the other hand, his life is just so fucking weird that it still feels really bizarre. I mean, I was listening, I mean, I've, since he died, I mean, I'm always listening to Scott Walker records, but I mean, since he died, I've been listening to, you know, my favorites. Um, and those are invariably our, our, our Scott 1, Scott 2, Scott 3, and Scott 4. And um, so those records are, you know, come out in the late 60s. And so in a way, the fact that he was still this artist feels very bizarre, um, it always, it almost feels like, well, of course he's dead. I mean, the, the, these records are so of their time, but that sort of pop, uh, you know, the sort of Burt Bacharach written music, that shit is dead and buried at the end of the 60s. And that never comes back um, as a popular form of music. And so the fact... I think there's, 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 there's th- th- threads of that, yeah, that, that run through the 70s for sure. Katie, yeah. Katie's a colossal fan of, of strange schmaltzy 70s rock so i'm exposed to a lot of it okay i mean he was a true relic right he was katie's gonna get it's more like late late 60s and early 70s you know you see a lot of like soundtrack-esque music and stuff that was in like you know like james bond movies and you know all that kind of stuff was like sort of the i mean that's when 60s pop sort of takes a different turn Mm -hmm. and it sort of almost uh synthesizes with like the psychedelic elements of the time also but they're just doing a very different thing for like the older people right but in terms of like you know what i mean i don't know that's the best way to put it but yeah scott walker's records feel very sort of 
they, I mean, all 60s pop to me really feels like very locked in time. I want to say like, I mean, for me, Scott Walker is, is, is an artist like, like, like the band Chrome, one of my favorites, where Scott Walker is something totally of his era, but also totally singular and totally transcendent of the era. Well, if, uh, of um, course, yeah. There, there's- I think the whole thing with Scott Walker sort of um, being popular amongst like 80s indie people and like sort of like uh, record store heads who I think that sort of style of like record store hit music head kind of comes from like 80s, you know, mm-hmm. like 80s time period. Like, uh, you know, you're sort of like, uh, surveying the century and like going over like what music is important and weird and like very people, very few people maybe actually know like how good or how cool or how influential it is. And I think that's like where, and that's like how like someone like Scott Walker gets um, recontextualized through labels like 4AD and -hmm. stuff like that, which are kind of on an, you know, the, what, comes from like the early eighties indie culture, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that's, and then like, yeah. So like people of taste or whatever, um, art school kind of record store head type people like, um, kind of carry that torch and like pass on the music to, uh, younger generations and just keeps snowballing through the decades or whatever. Um, that's like kind of my explanation for something, you know, for especially like music from 50s and 60s um, that sort of gets exposed outside of the main uh, pop culture tropes and styles and bands and artists of the time. I don't know if that makes any sense or if I just rambled. No, that's it. That's a totally good point. I think uh, the the, the 4AD connection, I think is really, is really pertinent there. I think that that, that is kind of part of part of the thread that carries Scott Walker through through the '90s and 2000s. Um, one thing I, I I'm not a huge Scott Walker head. I'm I'm not an expert on his music, but I have heard some of it, and it is fucking strange. Uh, one interesting analog I'd like to point out is just uh, maybe about a, like a few days ago, I was in a stoned YouTube hole as you do at night. And I somehow stumbled upon Andy Kaufman's performance on, I think it was the Ed Sullivan show. Mm-hmm. One of those, one of those like late night talk show hosts from the probably like the late seventies. And it just struck me. It just struck me how, how incredibly different the world we, I mean, obviously, but how incredibly different the world we live in now versus the world that existed then and how transgressive Andy Kaufman's bits were and how people had no context for understanding what he was doing. But now, I mean, fast forward 40 years and that, you know, that stuff is Kaufman's bits and impersonations and his irony and his sarcasm and his sort of light trolling is, it's not even, it's like, it's gone beyond de facto. It's, it's just, it's a part of what everybody does. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's it's kind of interesting to think about Scott Walker in a in a similar context where he existed in this whole other realm that is, as you guys have been talking about, completely bygone. But makes, makes the pop actually the avant garde, if you will. 
you're, it's like someone who takes pop and actually makes it the avant-garde rather than yeah, yeah, yeah. what people pass. <laughs> exactly. That exactly. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think that's a really great summation of it that, that artists like Scott Walker, yeah, they, 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 they take pop and make it, make it truly avant-garde. Um, yeah. I, uh, Sometimes, sometimes I wonder though, like how much of it is him and like how much of it is like the team he was working with. Cause obviously he's working with like producers and like basically an orchestra yeah, and like all that kind of so- songwriters, you know, he was singing a lot of Jacques Brel and stuff like that. Um, but sure. like, how did that just how, like, how, how did that, how did those four solo albums come together i just i haven't really looked i haven't watched this, the documentary yeah um sometimes i wonder about that you know but sometimes i'm just like well i just like listening to the music i just like enjoying it i don't know you could say the same thing about bowie though or you know any number of similar similarly you know kind of with bowie just seems more obvious though because he's like a he's a glam rocker and he's a he's a hipster you know what i mean like i don't know like he's Right, He's Walker, just more tied in with that, and yeah. it just seems more, and especially Scott Walker being an American, um, it just seems even more exotic. Or I something. mean, Scott Walker was basically the guy who would be on the cover of the equivalent of Tiger Beat or something. You right, know, I mean, right, I mean, right. I don't know if Tiger Beat goes back. That it's like far. If, it's it's like if Nick Carter started doing Max. Yeah, pieces, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that I would love to hear, <laughs> Nick Carter, if you're out there. Let's hear your Max MSP work. Come on the show, man. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Go on Basecamp Beta, Nick Carter. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be Basecamp Alpha just for you. <laughs> Plastic Palace people Through fields of clay And granite gray They play without a sound Plastic Palace, Alice Blows gaping holes to store her fears Inside her lover's head Well, I think yeah. this is happening at a much greater frequency today where I'm seeing uh, tropes and sounds and uh, uh, styles that ostensibly originated in the world of underground weirdo electronic music making their way in some shape, in some way, shape or form to chart topping. Like, think about Arca. Arca is pretty huge, right? Arca is like pop music. Yeah, is Arca like pop music? Are you sure? Well, I mean, he's produced I mean, half a Kanye West album. That's true. That's true. That's as close fair, as you can fair, get. Fair, yeah, fair, totally. Fair. Arca's Arca's a pretty huge name, and his music is fucking weird. Like, or think about like Twigs, you know, FKA Twigs. Like, she's borrowing a lot of tropes from this from the worlds that we come from, 
And, you know, think about Warp Records is increasingly becoming like a pop music label. Almost. Yeah. That, that, but that, that's always struck me as just them selling out more and more. Um, well, yes, but it's also... Well, the to the extent that, that it's, it's Grizzly Bear, yes. But to the extent that it's, I don't know, something interesting. Um, right, but this also speaks to the fact that the pop music world is becoming more aware and more interested in the world of underground music. Well, I think, I think that, that, that is, that's telling because I think we're in a, again, to bring, bring things back to the kind of music journalist music journalism kind of ecosystem, ecosystem, uh, you know, the last 10 years, 15 years, but especially the last five, 10, um, you know, the, the journalistic outlets have become extremely horizontal where, you know, you will literally on fact mag have, uh, have an article on, uh, Rihanna and then Bo Wanzer. Um, they exist totally without any kind of dissonance on the same platform. And I think that, that that's, that's in part due to, you know, kind of, um, uh, in part due, due to, uh, streaming, streaming stuff, uh, YouTube, et cetera. But, um, yeah, uh, things, things have become very flattened in that way. Um, I, I don't think yeah, it's a good thing. I, I don't think it's something we should champion. Um, I think, well, it's, I, I, mean, I, I, I think, I think it's something that, that ultimately erases the context of both musics. Um, but this, this, I think it's is, interesting that, that, fans of pop music today like when i meet uh 23 year olds who are listening to whatever's on spotify i am continually shocked and awed by the weird detours into underground music that they know right like somebody who might be might be bumping drake in future will also know mesh and i'm like what 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 the fuck and I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. But again, like the, the, that's because there is no underground anymore. Like, yeah, right. Absolutely. These, absolutely. these, these platforms have, have completely flattened everything. Um, and again, I, 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 I mean, you know, the, the, the immediate, the, the immediate impulse is that this is a great thing. Like everyone can access cool, weird music. Um, but, but I think ultimately what it does is it just leaves us with uh, these, these scenes that are, are contextless, um, you know. Yeah, I think so too. Again, to bring things back to you know this kind of idea of, of music communities, um, how, how can you have a community when um, when when, there, when there's no context for it? Right. I mean, that was my favorite bit from uh, Dominic Ferno's resident advisor interview, and I have a lot of qualms with his music. Uh, I'm not a huge fan, but the way he talked about subcultures and the way that subcultures have driven his entire life that resonated with me heavily i mean that's you know i fucking live for this weird music shit for better or worse and i think it's interesting to (laughs) yeah realistically speaking (laughs) um but i think it's interesting to think about what the future will hold or what the future will bring because we're clearly not gonna experience a great revival of the subcultural landscape of the eighties and, 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 and the nineties. But I don't know what's, I don't know. I don't know what's next. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of the hope, right? I mean, the hope was with the emergence of the internet, um, from 95 to 2005, you know, the sort of, 
that time period where everyone sort of took the internet into their home and it was more widespread and Napster was, you know, becoming this big thing. Um, and the internet was really starting to define how people related to music, how they discovered music and how they increasingly obtained music. Um, the assumption for most people, uh, most spectators, most media people was that, okay, well, um, the internet is going to, uh, cause this major thing where everyone gets into these very bizarre subcultures and all of a sudden like it's basically going to kill mainstream consensus everyone is going to be able to find what they want find what fits their individual uh you know fits them indivi- as individuals but hey hey look i mean it did happen we have asmr now <laughs> i mean <laughs> You know, that certainly fits all of us. I mean, we all listen to ASMR videos before we go to sleep. Um, but that's that's not what happened, right? I mean, the internet caused, in instead of a fracturing and instead of the internet leading people on these weird paths to their own uh, sort of idiosyncratic musical communities and languages, um, it, it, it caused more than that, a, a consolidation. Um, it caused a sort of, it created an even more, um, firm and unshakable, uh, musical consensus. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, in, in, in one of my favorite quips in recent memory, uh, on, on, on a related topic, I, I, you know, I, I said something along the lines that like the internet was meant to be a thousand, like a million thorns in capital side, but it became its, its, its souped up bionic arm. I was very proud of that. Uh, that As well, you should be. I mean, if, um, if we want to use a tweet as the uh, we, catchphrase I, 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 I of the I show. Did, I didn't say it was a tweet. I didn't say it was a tweet. It was a tweet. It was a tweet. Yeah, you don't have to lie to us. <laughs> you can you can wear that proudly on your sleeve, get it tatted on you. Maybe on your face if you want to, you know. Inner lip tat, I think. <laughs> the world is flat. Is that a Thomas Friedman book? And podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and podcast before I go on a rant about Tom Friedman. Yeah. 